Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now here's today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. I'm honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. And we are going to discuss lobsters. Wow, there's a topic for the Business Creators Radio Show, lobsters. <laughs> Specifically, how to grow like a lobster. And you're going to find out in a moment what that phrase means. And to help us understand that, let me first introduce our guest. His name is Joshua Dick. Over 15 years, Joshua has transformed a small family business into a global market leader in the coffee industry with customers in over 70 countries and distribution facilities on three continents like Starbucks and Keurig. In the process, sales grew more than 25 times while earnings multiplied over 275 times. After the sale of the business, Joshua started a new adventure by moving to Florence, Italy with his wife and three daughters. He has now dedicated himself to helping others who seek to build extraordinary businesses based on what they truly love and do. Okay, uh, that is so impressive. I'm not sure if I'm qualified to be in this conversation, even though it's my show. So let's find out. Joshua Dick, come on in. The weather's fine. Adam, thank you so much for having me. Yes, the weather is fine, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. All right. Uh, what we like to do here on Business Creators Radio, we, I just read off your official biography, fairly impressive, shows some statistics about what you've achieved in business. But what we like to do here is before we dive into the primary topic of conversation is take a step back and discover more about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience. So in other words, tell us more about Joshua the man and your journey. Absolutely. So speaking to you now, as you said, from Florence, Italy, and my path here was quite a diverse one. I started out with my career um, in investment banking, working for Solomon Brothers, quickly learned that investment banking was not for me, that I really wanted to touch something and make products. Um, I went on to get an MBA at the Kellogg Business School, and from there I worked for Unilever, the large consumer products uh, marketing and sales company. But I really kept realizing that I, I wanted to do something on my own. And I happened to be one of those fortunate people that had a business that had been in my family for generations. It was quite small. It was only 12 employees. And it was uh, distressed at the time that I was working on, at Unilever. And um, I took a leap of faith and decided I was going to go check it out and see what I might be able to make of this business. And uh, it was a very fortunate decision because I was not only able to kind of put my impact on a business that had begun a long time ago, but also to put into place a number of different business philosophies and ideas that I think I had learned over my previous experiences. And uh, fortunately for me, the business, through a lot of hard work and an incredible uh, set of teamwork, 
new employees, acquisitions, growth grew exponentially. And um, when I was able to sell the business, I took the step back and looked at the things that were important to me in life. And my wife and I, as I said, moved here to Italy. And that was the, um, the place and the point in time where I realized I had learned so many great things running and building my business that I should sit down and try and put something together. And that was the birth of the book, Grow Like a Lobster. All right. Tell us more about what that phrase, grow like a lobster, means. I get that we're generally going to be speaking about various facets of organizational behavior and activity that lead to growth, but grow like a yeah. lobster. Yeah, tell I will us a bit you, more so about that. It all, started, it all started my sort of infatuation with lobsters, aside from dining, um, was um, a book I read in the early 2000s about um, basically the life cycle of a lobster by a guy named Trevor, Trevor Corson, and it was called The Secret Life of Lobsters. had absolutely nothing to do with business, but I found it interesting. I picked it up, and I read this description of the painful and traumatic experience that a lobster goes through every time it wants to grow. They call that a molt. And during the molt, it literally has to rip its body out from inside of its shell to a point where it's disgusting. And it almost dies trying to succeed because if it doesn't do it quickly enough, its, its gills stop working and it's dead. And once it has successfully ripped its body out of its shell, it lies there on the ocean floor as this vulnerable creature that anybody can come along and eat. And as I'm reading that passage, I said, oh, my God, that's me. That's my business. That's how I feel sometimes, so vulnerable and weak. And um, I started to take and use that idea, that metaphor, as a way to help myself and help my team, what I call plan and prepare for the molt. And um, I happen to have this philosophy that every time a business is strong and we call it our shells are hard, is followed by a time when we're weak and vulnerable. And if we can adopt the mindset and the awareness that these vulnerable times come, we can do everything we can to get ready for them, and they become much easier to confront. Wow. That is something. And you see, you, you have a creature. I have a creature. You have lobsters. I have groundhogs. Really? So I wrote a book <laughs> called Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy. And where we came up with the title of that book is I was – discussing my concept of what I wanted to do with a book with my business coach and just in describing the, I guess, my draft positioning statement, I made the offhand comment that for a lot of these entrepreneurs who it seems like no matter what they do, they end up on the exact same plateau of revenues and profitability no matter what they try and achieve, trying to move forward with their business starts to feel like that movie Groundhog Day over and over and <laughs> over again. Aha, there's a title. So like you investigated the life cycle of lobsters and we look at the molting process, them literally ripping themselves out of their bodies and then having to sit on the ocean floor until they can regenerate that. And in the meantime, they're vulnerable. We looked at behaviors of groundhogs, for instance, when they dig their burrows and how the burrow will sometimes go underneath the foundation of your structure and could cause structural deficiencies. How huh. groundhogs dig burrows in the middle of the, in the middle of farms and then the track the, the the farmer is driving along in their tractor and all of a sudden the tractor tips over because it ran right over a groundhog burrow where the soil was weakened and it created basically a small version of a sinkhole now on the other hand those same groundhog burrows interspersed in large farming fields are helpful to protecting the plants 
because they house creatures like foxes, skunks, and rabbits that on the one hand are predators to the plants, but on the other hand are also predators to the predators to the plants, like they eat the bugs. So by creating the burrows, it creates places for those predators to live so that they can be away from the plants, but at the same time come out and protect the plants. It's kind of interesting how that works. We also discovered how groundhog burrows have rooms, like your house has rooms, and the amount of dirt that a single groundhog displaces when digging their burrow, which basically create, which basically if it was put in a pile, would be about as tall as you and me. Now that creates greener grass on our side of the fence. My point being in sharing this, and I know that you have so much to share with us, is just to point out that looking at nature, we can discover a lot about our own nature. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the groundhog, I've had my, my battles with groundhogs myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I completely understand. You know, I, I think the point you make is a great one because lobsters or any metaphor you might use in this world to help you with your business is a way to sort of simplify things and synthesize big ideas in a way that a team can collectively get together and unite and focus really well on. So the animal metaphor works very well for me. Yeah, so we are going to cover a variety of topics in the remainder of our time together. And we have about, uh, I think, about 45 minutes at this time. So we have a lot of room to go in a lot of different directions. I'm really excited about this lobster metaphor. Uh, and I know one of the first things we wanted to cover here, because we, you and I went over a bunch of stuff in the green room here. So I'm just going to sort of fire these out as they come up. And we'll leave it to our listeners to make sure to go back and subscribe to the Business Creators Radio Show so they can download and rerun this episode to get everything they need. You mentioned something called the 1% idea. What is that and how do we find it? Yeah, so, you know, for me, um, I'm going to bring it back to the lobster because it ties in very well. Please, tell uh, us the, about lobsters. Yeah, Otherwise, no, I have to talk about groundhogs. No, 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 no. <laughs> the 1%, the 1% idea ties straight to the way a lobster grows. Oh, so okay. Every time, a, every time a lobster molts, it happens to grow 15%. Wow. And um, that's what it does pretty much every year for its entire life. And coincidentally, my business model was never to grow more than 15% a year. We grew 15% every year for 15 consecutive years. And um, I, that was really my way of uh, growing, I would say, with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at the same time of driving. I liked consistent controlled growth. And the 1% idea that you asked about is a, a little bit of a, a sort of philosophy that I have about how you get to 15% every year. How does one decide what's a big enough product to put the time and energy and bandwidth behind? And my philosophy is it's really only worth it if a new idea or a new product is going to be enough to add 1% of incremental sales to the business based on the previous year. If you can come up with two or three incre incremental ideas, you're two or 3% of the way to the 15% goal. Wow. Okay. That is something here. Uh, I didn't realize that, and again, because you're educating us, that every time the lobster molts, it has about a 15% growth. That's it something. An, yeah, it was an unbelievable coincidence to me. I used the molt metaphor in running the business, but when I started writing the book, I learned all these things, and I was like, oh, my God, it grows exactly the same rate that I, re I grew my business for 15 years, and it just seemed to connect really well. The other cool thing about a lobster 
it's one of the only creatures that continues to grow throughout its life. And they live a very long life, over 100 years possibly, if they don't get caught and eaten. And um, who wouldn't want to have a business growing every year on a consistent, controlled basis um, in perpetuity, let's call it. 15% 15% a year, that'd be great. And what I also like about your metaphor is in order to achieve that growth, a business has to molt, which means it has to literally grow out of its own body. Exactly. We, we always have to keep building upon what we've done in the past. Yep. And I think that's one of the great things about a business because as you build on the foundations and the layers and investments you made in the early years, you're able to not only grow the top line, but those foundations and investments also help generate profitability of higher and higher levels, hopefully exponentially. Yeah. You know, I've advocated myself, particularly for entrepreneurs and business creators, that it's not only recommended, but in some cases necessary to rebrand yourself every so often. Uh, Like, you know, in, in the terms of my business trajectory, and I've been an entrepreneur for nearly 20 years, I've moved into different areas of work. I've had, I've done, ex, I've done beta tests. I've done alpha tests. I've had lines of business. I've had multiple streams of income. And I discovered that in order to facilitate this, in fact, one of the things that helps me move forward fastest is when I give something a new name. And I've seen that also with a lot of my clients. Every so often, they come up with some new line of business and they give it a new name. In fact, with one of our clients, they're literally changing their name, like the name that they go by, in order to facilitate a branding change. So I just think of that in terms of your molting by shedding out of a previous brand or a previous theme and growing a new theme or a new brand that enables you to grow bigger. That's interesting. I had never thought of it that way. My sort of approach was all, always and always has been very, very focused, consistent reinvestment and regular investment in taking one brand and continuing to build and strengthen it. But you raise a really interesting way of thinking about it, which maybe is um, maybe my next book. Well, <laughs> here, to yeah. so we have sort of a, a point counterpoint here. And I agree with what you say as well, that there's a lot to be said for consistency, reliability, and the granite-like integrity of having been there for a long time. And that's all well and good. And I actually believe that both things can coexist. So you can have the same brand or the same brand leader that adopts uh, a different sobriquet or has a different name for a new line of business, something along those lines, while they themselves, as the core of the brand, have that reputation and that track record for having been there a long time. You bring me to an, it brings me an interesting thought to mind. Within my business, which was, as I'm not sure we really described it, was cleaning products for coffee machines and Uh um, detergents. And believe it or not, we actually had two different distinct brand names almost like a car company might have two brands under the parent header. And we were able to use those different brands within the parent company as a way to satisfy different geographic or channel specific customers. So there's definitely something to using brands and using names as a way to have a different message for different audiences. Maybe they are in effect a very similar product on the foundation, but you can play with things. I mean, let's just look at the big car manufacturers, how, they have all of these different sub-brands, but a lot of them are built on similar platforms. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, everybody knew that 
Ford and Lincoln were they had the same owners, Toyota and Lexus, uh, Honda and Acura. If, if, if I'm getting those right, I might be confusing them by one. I don't know. But the idea is that they recognize that there are different trim levels or different brand levels. We also see this with companies that will acquire their competitors but not put out a press release over it. So what happens is they may have people who rebel against one of their brands and say, oh, well, forget you. I'm going to your competitor, Mr. X over here. Meanwhile, that other competitor is also another one of their brands. So they say, well, boy, we're so sorry to have you leave us. We, um. I've been in that experience. <laughs> and then, and then it's had, like, it's like yeah. and, then, and then over here on the other side, they say, hey, look at this. We got this new customer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I had exactly that experience with a competitive acquisition. Yeah. And, you know, it tells you a lot about uh, customer brand loyalty and how much, how important it is to respect that. I think that for me, the competitor that we acquired, I acquired it because I so admired the brand loyalty they had created amongst their customers. And for all my efforts to attract their customers to the brand that I had created, they wouldn't budge. And that was a point in time when it made sense to go out and do the acquisition, but we really admired that brand and we protected it and we nurtured it in the same way we had our own. Precisely. And I'm not even, and again, I'm not even necessarily saying that's a bad thing. And I think it's also possible for a company to have different lines of business where one would attract a particular customer and another would repel that same specific customer. And when I look at that, all I see happening is that company being dynamic, flexible, and open to opportunities, looking to serve as many people as possible from its intersection of its brilliance and its passion and make the biggest difference for its community market and audience. Absolutely. We, I mean, so important to me, one of the big tenets of the book in my business philosophies is the idea of really understanding our audience and understanding our customer and recognizing that what we like and what's important to us um, might not matter. Um, we have to really recognize that we are not our audience and we have to go out and do the things and provide the products and services and ideas that our customers find valuable. Absolutely. I am with you 1000%. I've argued for years that there's what people want or think they want. There's what people, what they say they want. And then there's what they respond to in the way that you want them to respond. Those are, in some cases, three completely different things. Because what they think, because what they think they want is what their moral code tells them they're supposed to want. What they say they want is what society tells them they're supposed to want. So they're going to parrot off a bunch of lines. And what they respond to in the way that you're looking for can be something different entirely. Inside my book, I have a whole section on why it is that you have people that will be um, infatuated or hooked on to some lying, cheating, loser, jerk. And they keep going back to this person, having fights with them and complaining about them over and over and over again. Meanwhile, their perfect person who matches all the points on their ideal mate checklist is right there in front of them. They say, oh, I don't know. They're, they're just a friend. But they keep <laughs> going see. back to that lying, cheating, loser, jerk. So I bring that up simply because I want people to think about what it is that actually causes people to respond. So if you find yourself hooked onto a lying, cheating, loser, jerk, don't condemn yourself for it. Ask yourself why. You could discover something about your own motivations. 
without without a doubt i mean we are all we're very interesting creatures i think there's so much to be said for trying to understand what's going on with your customers but also what's going on in the minds of your employees and yes. then we also have to figure out ourselves you know we have to really be <laughs> self-aware okay so let's discuss employees contractors team members because that's where i was going great minds think alike here so we've spent about 10 minutes on communicating with the market so how do we encourage efficient, excuse me, efficient yet effective communication within your organization? Oh my goodness. Um, to me, that is the number one job of a CEO or a business leader. How do you communicate? How do you help prioritize your team and your employees? For me, it was incredibly important that no one in the organization ever wait for me as the CEO to make uh, a response or to give them a response. And I made a point of actually prioritizing anything someone asked of me as something that I dealt with and responded to before my individual or independent tasks. Because I looked at it as say, saying, I want to give them my feedback as quickly as possible so that one, they're not discouraged, two, they're not frustrated, and three, that they're excited to move forward and they're not wasting my time or the business's time or their time waiting on me. So I think employees really appreciate a fast response, quick ideas, lots of engagement and not disappearing into your shell because one, that's what's important to you or two, because you want to prove to them that you're important, more important than they are. I think that part of what you just said there speaks to the distinction between availability and accessibility. It's great to be hyper-responsive to everybody's requests, questions, and things along those lines. We also know that in some cases it's not practical, either because of what the person needs to deal with in terms of their own levels of concentration, their own, uh, their own ability to be quote-unquote available, and maybe it just doesn't fit their personality type to be that way. I know myself because a lot of times I just want people to leave me the hell alone. So I discuss, So I did some research and I came up with a distinction between availability and accessibility. And while I agree or with everything you've just said about how you when you put that you do that serve first and put people first type vibe out there, how that can really help you in the organization in terms of facilitating communication. Some people may not be built to be that way. Uh, I can tell that you certainly are. Um, and I'm actually telling you that to a degree, I'm not. So I'm being candid about that. So availability is when somebody emails you, calls you, and you know, they, get, they get you right away. Accessibility is being accessible in the sense that people can easily get a hold of you. It's not like you're just going to leap 24-7. Here's how I express accessibility. I don't give out my cellular number to anybody. There's no texting with me. It just doesn't happen. Uh, I don't answer my telephone for an unscheduled call unless the person has already given me a bunch of money. That being said, literally anybody can get me on the telephone. You go to schedulewithadam.com and you book a time and you tell me what you want to speak about. 
there. See, so you, yeah. there's no phone tag. There's yeah. no questions. There's you go there, you find the nearest mutually available time, put yourself in, tell me what the topic of conversation is, and I will be there and we will have a great conversation. In fact, I'll be able to dive right into that conversation because I'll have time to anticipate it. I'll be mentally ready. I'll have researched and I'll be ready to dive right in. So we're actually being more effective and efficient that way. And it the accessibility is enhanced in, you know, in my view, because now we didn't have to play phone tag. There was no, do I have to ask him, is it okay? Does he have 10 minutes for me? No, just go get it. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think I agree. Um, you know, it, I think it all comes down to what are the objectives of the business and what are you trying to accomplish in terms of how you utilize the resources. I, I agree definitely with you outside resources, how you have to really manage that difference between availability and accessibility. I think what I was trying to allude to were my core team, my very senior level, I'd call them executive leaders. Um, I never wanted them to feel that they had to wait on me if it was something really big, because these were people that I looked at as really capable of doing deeply independent uh, fulfillment of objectives of the business. And I never, I, I looked at them also as high priced, highly paid. And if I, as the CEO were holding them up, I felt like that was a waste of the business's money. And right. uh, so I, I, you know, I really needed to make sure that they knew that when their project had gotten to a point where they really needed me, that I was there for them. And, and we're not talking about them coming to me with ridiculous little questions about, yeah. you know, what are we going to have for lunch today? Uh -huh. um, things like that. So yeah, so there's definitely a balance between that. And it depends on who you're dealing with and how you're trying to move them along, which I also think is a, a big job and role of the leadership of an organization. Yeah. Keep moving things along, keeping them focused and helping people avoid distractions. Yeah. So Josh, I want to get your thoughts on something because we're seeing this more and more. And uh, it's been a trend that's been evolving for at least the past 15 years with the globalization of business where you have people working in different time zones, you're working cross-culturally and everything else. And especially with some recent current events, we're seeing that there have been cases where people have had to basically stay home. So that dream of working from home has now basically become for some a mandate or for a while was a mandate for somebody, depending on when you're listening to this. That being said, uh, what are your thoughts on asynchronous work? We have people working either in different time zones or different times of day, different geographic areas, or just have different work styles. And how do we facilitate that asynchronicity to create great communication? And no, no question. I have lots of experience with this because we truly were a global organization, Ernex, that I was running with yep. distribution in 75 countries. And I had people um, in probably eight or nine time zones. So um, I think the way to really be efficient for me is um, in writing and communication. And I know that we all, sometimes it's easier to express our thoughts um, on video calls or face-to-face -face meetings, and there's a really a time and place for those. Right. One, tech, one technique that um, my team and I developed that I um, actually have written a blog about on, on my website is the idea of um, weekly communication summaries from core team members as a way to convey information that maybe one team member wants to share with the CEO, but the CEO forgets to share with another. And what we did and what I uh, mandated within our organization is that on Fridays, every Friday afternoon, 
um, everyone would take a few moments just to share with the entire organization five key points that were important to them and that affected them in business that week that might be of value to the rest of the organization. So we would this. send out a quick five-line, five-bullet um, communication that started with an accomplishment. What was the best thing I did this week? What was a disappointment? Let's tell everybody about what, what, where we failed. Um, what is my primary objective for the future, for next week? I also um, always felt it was important that everyone on the team um, express some recognition, uh, some thanks to another member of the organization or maybe a vendor that came through or um, you know, a customer that did something great. And then the last of the five really one sentence communications, sentence communications that I hoped everyone would get out was just something else that's on your mind. And I find that by doing this and by not just having people send that to me as the CEO, but to send it to their collective peers and colleagues, we did it with a group of six or seven every Friday, we would get to hear what everyone else was doing. It became a very, very efficient way to share information because everyone's Friday, everyone's weekend started at a different hour based on our time uh -huh. zones. And um, that type of written communication really anticipated problems, solved problems, and brought the team together in a very, very efficient and effective way. Wow. I'm glad I'm a subscriber to my own show because I'm going to have to go back and listen to this now. That is really really awesome i love that and the way that basically i think i heard you say it's five sentences reach those five sentences has a different theme absolutely in fact there's a, a literally it's a three minute read of a blog on my website which is joshua-dick.com it's called yeah. pass it pass it on as a blog and literally i lay out what the five sentences are and i actually give you an example of an of a type of a note that i would send to my team and everyone would take a little bit of something back. And what I loved most about this type of communication was that maybe someone in sales expressed um, an accomplishment, but someone in operations said, oh my God, you just accomplished that great sale. What does that mean for me? And it would start the dialogue within the web of the employees based on their responsibilities, just being tipped off to the fact that something might have been coming down the pipeline that they might need to, as again, plan and prepare for just tying back to the way the, the book is structured. And that was really how we used all those metaphors in that communication technique. When people share their five sentences, they do that through uh, an email to their work group? Do they post it in a, a communications portal? Where does that go? Yeah, so how we did it with my team, I had a direct reports. I had seven direct reports. And um, basically everyone shared it to our group of seven. So it was, you know, the, the top tier and me at the, the top of the triangle CEO. So the seven of us would share. What was amazing was that each of those direct reports, whether it be marketing or operations or customer service or finance, would use this same technique with their team. And we did it always through email. And everyone was sort of on a smaller subgroup. And it became very useful um, for everyone to sort of consolidate things. For me, one of the most amazing powers of this email was that when I got to a point where I was no longer the sole owner, but I had sold a portion of the business to a private equity firm, they never asked for it. But because I was doing this as a regular pattern every week, I would take little excerpts from my entire senior leadership group's emails that they sent me sort of cut and paste, organize it, and send it off to the private equity firm. 
And that actually preempted their asking for anything. And it really helped our organization stay focused and, and sort of keep running the way we had. And, it, you know, everything was right there in front of me. Yeah. I'll tell you, Josh, part of the reason I'm really latching on to this is because I have a formula for meeting management, especially when it comes to the weekly or periodic team meeting or board meeting or work group meeting. With, you know, no sooner or, or actually, you know, you know, at least 48 hours before the meeting, everybody who's in that work group or, you know, who's supposed to come to that meeting submits in a place where everybody can read it the following items, what they're currently working on, what their updates are, what questions or needs for support they have from other members of the group, and what ideas they have for moving things forward. It can be a quick bullet point list. It does not need to be a term paper. In fact, brevity is encouraged. The idea behind this was to eliminate the 75% of the meeting that was people speaking so they could get participation points. I, I think it's brilliant. That is the yeah. best. I, I hate meetings. I've uh -huh. always hated meetings. I've always done everything possible to uh, make meetings move fast from uh -huh. taking chairs away and having standing meetings regularly to running a business where uh, every conference room actually had a sand dial in the middle of the table. Uh, one was for 30 seconds and one was for 60 seconds. And uh, when I got to the meeting or whenever I was running the meeting, got there, you turned it over and the meeting had to be done. And uh, we knew when the sand was expired and we knew that you came to a meeting not to be heard but, or not to win points, but to accomplish things. And wow. that's, that's how I live the life. I, you are, you are a fierce brute and I love that. <laughs> that is just great. And now, so, so speaking of which, uh, and I've used this formula many times for boards of which I've been the chairman, for work groups that I've led, and sometimes uh, with clients of mine who have fairly large teams, one of the things that I do from, in my business consulting work is the client will actually make me the leader of the weekly team meeting so the client themselves can focus on doing their strategic stuff while somebody else handles the flow and facilitation. So I come into this new client, and uh, I, I got two quick stories here, and they're both the same client. Uh, I come into this new client, and uh, I become the facilitator of the weekly team meeting, and I have everybody submit those summaries, just as I described. Uh, five out of six people in the group did it, and uh, they each got their turn, where people had the opportunity to ask and answer their questions based on point number two, and uh, open up facilitation for discussion on point number three, their ideas for enhancement, moving things forward, et cetera. Well, about, there was one person who did not submit a report in this, uh, and about halfway through the, uh, the meeting, uh, the client actually called on this person. The person said, well, I know I didn't uh, submit a report, but I have an oral report. And I said, no, no, no you don't have an oral report. We don't do oral reports. If there's time at the end, we'll allow you to ask questions, but the people who did what was asked of them get to go first. That was a one hour meeting and son of a gun, why don't you just know that at minute 59 and 45 seconds, we finally had time left over? <laughs> that's, what it, that's what you get. Now, and, you know, you gotta now, run a tight ship. There's more. <laughs> There's more. Oh. Remember what I said about what people think they want, what they say yeah. they want, and what they respond to? 
absolutely. In, uh, in subsequent meetings, who do you think was the first person to submit their three-point report going forward? <laughs> who do you think was one of the most active participants in supporting others in the group? And who do you think just a few years, a few weeks later, um, had earned getting cited as an example of best practices? That is number six. Now, that, that, per, that person who didn't submit it the first time because what because what we looked at is what they respond to and what they respond to like most people is they don't want to be left out they want to be seen as being of help and they want to be seen as doing everything they can to facilitate helping people work together more efficiently even the in my experience the people who you'd look at their behavior and say, well, they're just really making this all about themselves. Me, 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 me. A lot of times you can peel back a couple layers of that onion and you can find out that more than anything, they just get frustrated by inefficiency. And the reason that they become my way or the highway type people is because they don't deal extremely well with being frustrated by being held up by other people, or they just have so much experience having dealt with it that they've now pivoted to the exact opposite extreme. And when you can find your way through that, you can actually move those people into more of a collaborative space. That makes perfect sense. Um, There are some people that are difficult to ever move. And I think with those people, you need to figure out if they're the right fit for the organization. Sometimes those people are good when you need somebody to work autonomously, and sometimes when you need somebody to be the designated hitter, so to speak. <laughs> that's a good because way that same because that same personality type, like if you uh, like, uh, you know, every organization of significant size, uh, whether it be a government organization, a, a business organization, what have you, there's that one person somewhere near the top of the organizational pyramid. If they show up on the other end of your telephone, you know shit's hit the fan. <laughs> yep. That type of personality is great for that because every so often you need to have that type of person identified who everybody knows is the troubleshooter, where if they're getting involved, you know they're the fixer. So there's a problem yep. and it's getting fixed. Yep. <laughs> and uh, in the real world, especially when you get into large organizations, you need that sometimes. It doesn't mean they have to be mean or nasty or be a total jerkwad about it. It just means that they're that designated person that uh, if they're getting involved, you know, you know, some sort of uh, fecal matter has hit the oscillating, the, the oscillating blades and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's going to get dealt with now. A- absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and as long as it's clear what the business is trying to achieve, their um, a- approach to resolving things is acceptable because if yeah. we're all working towards achieving the same uh, business goal and that's clearly articulated, there's no confusion about it. There's no excuses for why things didn't happen the way they should have. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had another quick story about that client. Um, getting that idea of using the weekly meeting more efficiently and using online technology such as a project management system to allow for asynchronous communication and also taking the time to acknowledge that everybody within that work group had vastly different personalities, vastly different ways of working and vastly different professional backgrounds that all brought them to this place where we really truly were a mixed bag of people. Uh, created something that I thought was really great. This was a company that was in startup mode, and it, when it made the transition beyond startup to actually being involved in revenue, 
generating activities and uh, and uh, needing to get things done on deadlines that actually mattered because money would be involved. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And then and then uh, I and I, I remember this plain as day. Uh, right in the thick of all this, the client the client says. Hey guys, you think we should have a meeting to touch base? And within five minutes, every single person responded and said no. <laughs> they didn't just say no, forget your meeting. They were able to say, uh, "We're good right now. We uh, we all have the the agenda. We all uh, are on the same page based on what we discussed the other day. We're really just trying to focus on getting this done and hitting the target. Uh, at this point, a meeting would be counterproductive." Absolutely. I, 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 I had to do like five victory laps over that one. <laughs> there are way too many meetings in businesses. And uh, I think if the business is uh, coordinated and communicated the right way, you shouldn't need as many. And I agree that it's just the idea that by encouraging effective yet efficient yet effective communication, we were able to actually empower the team so that they were able to discern whether or not another conversation was needed. They weren't just saying, no, screw those meetings. We don't need meetings. They were saying, we're in such a good place because of how efficient and effective our communication is that we are confident that we're on the same page, we're aligned and we're moving forward, and we just want to keep on that path without any distractions at this time. That's the difference. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot yeah. of sense. All right, so you mentioned, uh, I heard the phrase private equity firm back there a few minutes ago, and I know that's another talking point that we wanted to discuss here because uh, a recurring topic on Business Creators Radio Show, and we do feature episodes specifically on this topic every so often because our listeners demand it, is making your business a saleable asset. So do's and don'ts of selling to a private equity firm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, the the I believe that we shouldn't be building a business to sell it. We should be building a business to make a great business. And uh, when you do that, private equity firms are going to be interested. Um, so I think the number one don't of selling to a private equity firm is what they call taking the call. And that would, by that, I would mean responding to one private equity firm calling you up and saying, hey, we'd like to make you an offer for your business. We think it's great. What you want to do is you want to control the process. You want to be well advised and you want to make sure that your business is organized in a way that you can share with the private equity firm, the things they want to know about the business and that you can get a number of them involved in what you hope is a bidding war. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And I agree. Don't build a business just because you want to sell it because in the end you're going to create, in my opinion, something that's built on false pretenses and will be a house of cards. If you're properly building a business, it will become saleable because it'll have the infrastructure, the products and the leverage to be something that somebody would want to buy. You know, what's interesting. I, I talk a lot in, in my book about the idea of building my dream job. And um, by that, I meant a job where I really enjoyed going to work every day. I loved the people I worked with. I was challenged by my responsibilities and I was well compensated. And right. when I got to a point where I had built a dream job, it meant that I only ever had to sell the business if someone was going to offer me a lot of money because I was always going to be happy going back to my dream job. 
And it wasn't like I had any desperation to leave. Um, it was purely giving me the, the power or the control in that relationship with uh, potential buyers or investors. That's, see, that's great. The idea of a dream job. In other words, the thing that no matter what company you're working for, what company you've owned, is something you can always default back to, and it's always something you can recreate. So let's say you, say you sell one company and start another. You can recreate that dream job within a new company. Or if you decide to sell and not start a new company, you can maintain that job under the new owners because that's another path that some people follow. They say, you know, enough of being the owner. I just want to be a consultant or I want to be a part of the team. So I'll stay with what I built and I'm happy to, and I'm happy to work under adult supervision. Well, absolutely. Actually, for me, it was an interesting dealing with a private equity firm is who I sold to the first time. Um, I retained some ownership and it wasn't that they were so much supervising me as much as it was, they were there as my partners and gave yeah. me um, an incredible opportunity to learn from them, to um, tap into their resources. And also after selling a portion of the business to a private equity firm, it became a lot easier mentally to make big investments. I yeah. think when I was one of the few owners, I was spending what was perceivably my money only. And when I had partners in there, they sort of encouraged me to spend a little bit more higher, um, higher levels of talent, uh, think about the big investments we were making because I learned from them the vision of looking forward and really planning to build something great that had uh, a different level of value, another great business, but in a different way. Yeah. And in some of my presentations, I call that phenomenon one plus one equals more than three. <laughs> Because that's kind of that's kind of what you get. Uh, I've had some mixed experiences with partnerships myself. I'm not going to get into the details of all that. Some have been great. Some have been not so great. But the one thing they all have in common, even the ones that weren't so great, is that having somebody else involved in the conversation, having somebody else involved in the strategy helped me see and identify opportunities I never would have noticed on my own. No question about it. You know, more opinions, more advice, more experience is always going to be of value. And trying to run a division, a group, uh, a small organization, a large organization, it can be lonely. It can be a little bit isolating. And um, when you have partners who you trust and respect, um, you can learn a lot from them and it can sort of take the burden off of your shoulders sometimes. Maybe help you um, avoid making a mistake or maybe help confirm for you that a decision you made that you weren't quite sure about was a good one. And that feels good too. Yeah, precisely. I'm, and I'd also like to add that when you are partnering with somebody or you're going back and forth on ideas with somebody, you're creating consensus. When people disagree with you or you disagree with people, that actually helps the idea generation process. Because let's say that I, ha I have a proposal, you and I are working together and I am advocating for something and you strongly disagree with it, but it's something I'm really dug in on. That will lead me to create a better case for looking to persuade you, which will cause me to do further research. It'll cause me to look at my ideas. It'll cause me to look at the impacts and the opportunities here. Because the simple fact that you're resisting doing this and it's something that I really want to do is going to put me in an advocacy mode. And in doing that, I might discover along the way new reasons why this is a great idea I hadn't even thought of. 
And it could also make me look into it and say, yeah, you know, Josh might be right on this one. Maybe we shouldn't do it. I, I think you bring up a really, really good point about um, personal involvement sometimes with decisions or directions that an organization might want or need to go. For me, um, in business, it's very important to find a way to, um, I guess, sometimes try to separate your personal emotional attachment to ideas and um, attach rather yourself to how your idea, your vision, or your approach fits with the mission and values and goals of the business. And if those things have been well articulated and defined in writing, um, decisions I find become a little bit easier to get to if everyone on the team looks and says, is Adam's idea going to help us accomplish this goal that we talked about and wrote down in our mission statement or in our plan? And those arguments, I think, become a little more minimized by the fact that it either works for the vision and mission and, and goal objective, or it doesn't, or maybe it's close and we have to talk about maybe we shouldn't take it to this market yet until we've proven it in that market. And that, that way, I feel like some of those things and some of those organizational differences of opinion um, fall below the importance of accomplishing what the organization has set out to achieve. Right, right. I'm, I've seen experience with a mastermind I belong to for a long time where people come to the mastermind and share an idea they want to do with their business. And the, the leader of the mastermind, the coach, and maybe some of the other members who are on the call will all say, oh, you know, that's really not a good idea. You shouldn't do this. Uh, how is this in alignment with the goals you've identified for your business growth? And there are two ways you can respond to that if you're the person bringing the idea. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, guys, you're right. I won't do it. But I've seen in some cases where the person will come back to the next mastermind call and they'll say, guys, you know, um, I, I heard what you said about how I shouldn't do this, but I really think I should. And now they come with an entirely new case where they've explained how this actually does fall in line with their identified business goals, how this does reach a target audience, how this does help them render services more effectively, how this does help them be more in alignment with their own intersection, their own brilliance and their own passion. And when they can do that and they do it intelligently, I've noticed the energy of the mastermind change to, oh, okay, well, how do we support you in that? Because the power of the mastermind was it made that person go back to the drawing board and make a better case for themselves and for the idea. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's true in business. I think it's true in personal life, in a marriage, in a relationship of any sort. When um, there's a difference of opinion, sometimes it's really just in the way one uh, member of the group or the team or the partnership articulates and explains what's inside. And when we can get better at defining and clarifying and explaining what we're really thinking, not only does the idea get better, but I think the organization can understand it more clearly and use it collectively in a better way. Exactly. I'm with you 100%. So we have about five minutes left here, and I'd like to spend just a couple of those minutes on one final question, if you'll let us squeeze it in. Absolutely. And this is another topic comes up on my show. How do we avoid some of the potential pitfalls of family business transactions? Because now we're dealing with the family stuff in addition to the business stuff. And I've worked with family-owned businesses. (laughs) I know. 
Yeah. Well, so I have had quite a, quite a number of family related um, experiences. The business that I joined was actually one in which both my dad and my brother were working. Um, they were two of the 12 employees when I got there. And um, we went through a lot of different experiences. And eventually my brother and I um, bought out my dad in a transaction that he was ready for and positive about. Yeah. And eventually I bought my brother out. Um, and that's what sort of ultimately brought me to a, a different level of the way I was investing in the business. And the point I want to make about family businesses is um, they're very sensitive. They're very delicate. Yep. But I truly believe that if you're really focusing on what the objective is of the business and you can somehow separate yourself from the emotional part of the relationship you might have with your father or brother or sister or mother or whoever's involved, and you're trying to do what's right for the business, recognizing that every member of the family is somehow financially invested in the business, things I hope can get a little bit easier. It's never going to be perfect with a family. Um, for me, by the point in time when it was really moving forward, I never really ran or thought of the business as a family business. I thought of it as a business in which I happen to have members of my family working. And if the business was going to succeed, we were all going to succeed. And sometimes that meant that we had to really work hard at communicating the right things. But if you can separate somehow, however hard it is, the fact that the family history is there from the fact that you want to build a great, extraordinary business you're going to be a lot healthier and a lot happier. Yeah, and you know, this goes back to what we know about families. And you make an excellent point there that you need to create a certain degree of separation and a framework for being able to have those business communications. See, the thing with family is, is uh, whether you're raised by your biological parents or your adoptive parents or you're raised by one parent or a grandparent or what have you, at that point in your life, you probably had about zero impact on how that decision was going to go. Uh, you know, they, you've heard, you may have heard the phrase birth lottery. You may have heard yep. the phrase uh, someone else picks these people for you, that sort of thing. So you're going to get the family you're going to get. What you ultimately have to decide is how you're going to deal with them. And I don't think it's beyond the experiences of a lot of people who listen to this show, including myself, to know what it feels like to be disowned by a family member, sometimes over really stupid shit, candidly. They uh, know what it feels like to be in the room with their cousins and think, wow, if we weren't biologically related, this is somebody I would have nothing to do with ever. It's a funny <laughs> thing about families. It brings people together sometimes seemingly at random. And what we also see a lot of times in families is uh, differences will get papered over in the interest of harmony and that's why you have all that stuff lurking beneath the surface and why uh, we can look at how people behave in the current environment and create direct links to something that happened between our great-grandparents 130 years ago. I'm sure because we can. This, You're right. Because it's, it's, it's inherited trauma. It's inherited family patterning and things like that. So that's part of what you're up against when you're dealing with family businesses. So. Uh, I would say that before you even get into a family business, you need to have an awareness of how some argument your great-grandparents had 130 years ago could impact how you're going to deal with your brother-in-law in this new business venture, because that is real stuff. And having that awareness and being able to decide, can I work, move forward with my brother-in-law and can I, 
And am I really working with the right people in my family? Maybe these aren't the relatives I need to work with, or maybe I'm missing an opportunity to connect with a relative in a family venture and not just do it because, oh, well, we have this great idea that we could be a family and do a business together. Investigate yeah. this stuff, have awareness. And with the awareness, you may actually be able to overcome the family issues because if you know what happened between your great grandparents 130 years ago, you can deal with it now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, ha I happen to think that um, one of the most important tenets of business is to be super focused on doing the one thing that you really want to be great at and finding diversification in your life in other places, whether it be financial diversification in the stock market or wherever else you want to put your money. And um, if a family member happens to be in a business with you, I don't think um, you should forget that you're still running a business as yes. hard as that may be you can still be family and work together in a business as long as you are aligned in the fact that your mutual objective is to build the business. And that's a, that's easier said than done. I know. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, um, firmly believe that business is not personal. It's not emotional. We have goals in business and if we can, uh, achieve them, then we know that we're doing, um, we're doing the things that we set out to. Precisely. I mean, like, Josh, if you and I went into business, I mean, you and I might become really great friends on a personal level, but you're not going to be likely to bring your family stuff to me because what happens between you and your family is what happens when you and your wife and three daughters sit down to dinner in Florence, Italy. Exactly. That's going to have very little limited impact on how you're going to deal with me. However, yeah. however, if I was your brother, your brother-in-law, now we carry some of that other stuff into the relationship. We just need to be aware of it so that we can address it and be able to do business. Without any doubt, without any doubt, you're, you're spot on. All right. So I would love to keep this conversation going for like 25 more hours because this is really great. But unfortunately, we uh, have an hour time limit. So we have two minutes left. One of them is for you. Uh, what do you have for our audience? I think you mentioned you had a little something for us. Oh, in terms of uh, access to information about me and things that I'm yeah. doing. So um, <clears throat> the book, Grow Like a Lobster, Plan and Prepare for Extraordinary Business Results. So Grow Like a Lobster is available on Amazon pretty much everywhere. There's an Amazon all over the world. It's also available in an audio version on Audible and all those places you get audio books and Kindle. I have a personal website at Joshua dash dick or joshua hyphen dick uh, dot com and there you can subscribe to a, a newsletter that i send out and some blogs that i share and um there's also a website for uh grow like a lobster dot com that will tell nice. you more about the book and whatnot from there so you have all those different places and i'd love to hear from you you can contact me through the subscription or contact form and I'm happy to share ideas or answer questions about anything you might have heard here on this great conversation with you, Adam. All right, Joshua Dick, author of Grow Like a Lobster. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Well, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. And I too would love to talk more in the future. I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing. It's great what you're bringing to your audience. All right. Thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to your favorite network so you get fresh episodes like the one you just heard delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day.
Take care.